First John chapter 2, we are going to be in the same text that we were in in the morning. Because there is so much that John, I believe, wants to tell us and uh, we shouldn't be in a hurry when we come before God's word. Page 1021, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let us pray. Our Father, we have come once again before your word to receive from you. And we ask, as we always do, that you would bless the preaching of your word and that as a result of the teaching of your word, our very lives will be transformed and changed by the working of your spirit through your word. Lord, as we read in the book of Luke, we ask that you would have us hanging on your very word, that we would receive your word as the word of God indeed, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the questions that the book of First John attempts to answer is, is this. Who is a Christian? That's one of the primary questions that the book of First John attempts to answer. To put this another way, when people ask questions like these, First John answers such questions. How can I know that the person I want to marry, practical example, is a Christian. How can I know that my brother or even my wife is a Christian? Or even how can I know that I myself, I am a Christian? That's one of the things that First John answers for us. Almost every verse, almost every chapter. And so whenever you listen to people preach on First John, one of the things you hear is, First John is a book of tests. Because over and over and over again, the apostle is giving us tests. Test this, test that, check this, check that. Test from conversion. Test if somebody has actually repented from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it is easy for everybody. Anybody can say, I'm a Christian. As a matter of fact, in our country, we are told that 50% of Nigeria's population are Christians. So the official statistics is like either 49% Christians, 51% Muslims, or 51% Muslims, 49% Christians, and that has been the statistics. So in other words, <clears throat> we should have about 100 million Christians in Nigeria. But we know 
That's not really the case. So what John is trying to do for us is test. How can I know I'm a Christian? Am I really a Christian? John is giving us such an example. And I think it's important, especially in our context. We have somebody as popular as Ahmed Issa, ordinary president, who prays Ishallah in Jesus' name. So if merely saying in Jesus' name makes somebody a Christian, ah, then we have reason to be concerned. It means that everybody probably is not even a Christian. You see, John, in his time, was fighting a heresy. And one of the characteristics of heresies is um, a heresy, basically, is a departure from orthodox biblical Christianity. It's a belief that is contrary to orthodox biblical Christianity. Let me give us a bit of church history. After Jesus died, the church began to grow. You've seen the book of Acts, the records, and all that. But before 100 AD, there was heresy left, right, and center. Every kind of heresy was popping up. People were saying different things, all of these things. And because the canon of the New Testament at that time had not been compiled officially into a book, there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of confusion. So a heresy is a departure from orthodox biblical Christianity. Let me explain that very well. Let me open that up. The Christian faith is based upon what the Bible is saying or what the Bible says. And when somebody begins to depart from orthodox biblical teaching, that's a heresy. And when we are talking about what the Bible says, remember, don't forget this, we're talking about what the Bible says as a whole. Are we together? So there's something that happens oftentimes. Somebody just goes to one passage of scripture and picks up something and begins to teach it and say this is what the Bible is saying. But we must not forget that the Bible is a book as a whole. It comprises of narratives, of poetry, or of, of proverbs, of the prophetic books. And all of this thing makes up God's revelation to man. So how do we know what is biblical doctrine? It's what you can see in the Bible given to us as God's revelation. That is what we believe. So what, why do we believe that man is totally depraved? We believe it because the Bible says that is what it is. Why do we believe that Jesus was the God-man who died for our sins? We believe it because the Bible says this is what it is. In other words, we are not bound to what somebody is saying. I, I'm not, there's nothing in the Bible that tells me that I am meant to believe what another person is saying. The Bible is sufficient. This is what God has given to me, and I believe it. And it is from the Bible that we get our doctrine. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith that we have been going through in the evenings on Tuesdays tells us that the Bible is the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. The whole. It's not a partial counsel. It's not something that is halfway and then you receive something. It's a whole counsel of God containing everything essential for God's glory, for man's salvation, for man's faith, and for man's life. That's what the Bible is saying. So if anybody now denies the core doctrines that we find in scripture, he is a heretic. If anybody denies the core doctrines, the orthodox biblical teachings that have been gleaned from scripture, that person is propounding a heresy. Now, heresies do some good. 
What do I mean? Most of the confessions today came out of heresy. The Apostles' Creed, uh, I mean, the Nicene Creed, uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, as we've been learning, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy, a lot of them came as a result of heresy. In other words, at a point in time, people begin to say different things in church. And then Christians will say, no, 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 no. We can't allow these things to pass. We must come together and define exactly what we believe. So that these people will know that you are not Christians. So if you don't believe the orthodox teachings that we believe, you can't call yourselves Christians. But the good in heresy does not make heresy good in and of itself. One of the things that results from heresy is confusion. In other words, when there is a heretic teaching, very or very serious, erroneous teaching, people become confused. Let me give an example. Recently, a popular apostle <coughs> began to teach something. It's not really a new clip. The way I, when I listen to it, I listen to the sound quality, and I know that as of 2022, the media team is dope. That's, that's, a, very, that's a very old clip. And I, can't, I, I won't summarize what he said, but he said one thing essentially. He said that the scripture is not authoritative, the scripture is not final, and the Bible in and of itself is not even God's word. That's the implication of what he was saying. Now, as much as some of us have been interacting on social media and countering such claims, one of the things I think we fail to consider is the fact that the people who suffer from heresies are other believers. So let's assume I've always been taught and I've always believed that the scripture is God's word. And then I sit under such a teaching. You know the first thing that comes to my mind? It's as if all my struggles is because I've not understood that what God's word is, is what gives spirit and life. Are you sure that I'm actually living the true Christian life? All these my struggles, I struggle with sin, I sleep too much, I struggle to pray. I think it's because I have not really gotten the word of God out of the Bible. So that word of God that comes out of the written text that gives spirit and life, I have not grasped it yet. There's a lot of confusion. In times of heresy, people begin to think, am I even a Christian? When there's such dangerous teaching, people begin to doubt if they are even Christians. I don't know if you've ever seen this thing before. You go to a program and the man of God or the woman of God Describe something so fantastic. And then you say, if this is what it is, I'm not a Christian. I've been there before. And that's one of the things that result out of heresy or error. In the time of John, something similar was happening. Because a particular group of quote-unquote Christians began to teach very funny things. They began to say, Jesus did not come as a human being. Some of them were saying, Jesus was a phantom. Because the, the, the human body is evil. Jesus was a phantom. Now, how do you think that would have sounded to some people who have put their faith in a historical Jesus who had a body? Some of them began to say, sin does not matter. We can do whatever we want to do and, and all that. So what John is saying is, in the midst of theological confusion and questions, here is how you can know what biblical Christianity is. Here is how you can, I'm talking about the entire letter of John, 1 John. Here is how you can know who a Christian is. Here is how you can know what is true. This is the test you have to apply. Whenever somebody opens up his mouth and says, I am a Christian, opens a big ministry and has 5 million members, here is what you can use to test. That's why 
the apostle wrote the entire book of First John. And in our text tonight, which is what we considered in the morning, he gives us a number of propositions to know who a Christian is. Who is a Christian? And the first thing John tells us is, a Christian is someone who is in the light. A Christian is someone who is in the light. Look at verse 8. <coughs> he says, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And so, this is not the first time John is using this light-darkness thing. It's some, and it's not just unique to John. It's something that we see over and over in the Bible. In John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Ephesians verse 5, chapter 5, verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of light and darkness is this, that they are opposites. So light and darkness are stark opposites. They are things that you would say cannot exist together. So when we are defining who a Christian is, it's good for us to think in terms of these two realities, or two kingdoms, or two realms, if you like. We're talking about two domains that are different from each other. By nature, you see, we are in the kingdom of darkness by nature. And see, this is, this is not, um, don't think about this as things that are, they, they are not together. They are separate. Light on one side, darkness on one side. That's why in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, the apostle said, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and translated us to the kingdom of his dear son. First, there is a domain or realm of darkness which is where everybody by nature is. A man who is born of a woman by nature is in moral and spiritual darkness. By nature. In other words, if somebody continues growing in life and never meets Christ, no matter how nice that person is, no matter how fancy that person is, no matter how seemingly loving that person is, that person is in darkness. Until a man comes to put his faith and trust in Christ, and the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1, and God moves him. He is in darkness. And this is the reason, as a matter of fact, why sinners cannot reform themselves. You see, people talk to people outside. People try to change. <coughs> a lot of times they change. For example, a man who is not a Christian can say, I no longer want to have premarital sex. I don't. I no longer want to be sleeping with people who are. It's not good in our culture. It's bad, and then he starts it, and he actually stops doing it. You know the problem in his heart is still doing it, because his own standard of righteousness is always the physical, the outward, the outward. But we know that it goes beyond the outward. So somebody who is even ticking all the boxes in society, who is nice and kind and does a lot of things, but his heart. Wicked, dirty, evil. We know the truth because we are Christians. So everybody by nature is here. But when a man meets Christ, the Bible tells us that there is a transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. There's a new master. There are new orders. 
It's a new kingdom, a new allegiance. He's now in the light. He's no longer in the dark. This is what it means to be a Christian. That you have been moved from one reality to another. And let me tell us the truth. It is not possible for somebody to be moved from light, from darkness to light, and you will not know. You see, increasingly in our day, it is becoming an offense to suggest to somebody that he or she may not be a Christian. It's, it's very offensive. Because the kind of place I'm coming from is the kind of place where people brag about what they've done. So, ordinary quarrel about who will cook food for a conference. I say, you are disrespecting me. You don't know that when they laid the block of this church, I was the one that put the first block in the ground. You are talking to me anyhow. How dare you even suggest that my idea is rubbish? When before you were born, we were preaching in here, in this place, in that place. And so you see an old man who you see, I mean, it can be frustrating sometimes, especially if you have unsaved parents or unsaved loved ones, uncles and aunties, and you're talking to them, and the person is telling you, that before you were born, we were doing crusade and people were getting healed. So it's become increasingly offensive to suggest to people. It's even offensive to suggest that a big man of God may not be a Christian. I know the question they tell you. They say, how can somebody be a Christian and yet 5 billion people are joining his program online? How can somebody be a Christian? And we forget in Matthew chapter 7, you know what Jesus said? He said on that day, some people will come to him and tell him, we did this in your name. Translate it. We built... Cities in your name. Prayer cities. We built camps in your name. That's what it is. We gathered 10 million people for one single program in Abuja in your name. We built domes in your name. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. A Christian is not somebody who does good for God. It's not necessarily defined by the amount or quantity of the things he does. A Christian, first and foremost, is somebody who has been moved from darkness to light. And the movement is visible in their lives. Very visible. Also, I think there's a, there's a kind of desire, a kind of thing moving on in church now, where we don't want to offend people. Many churches now don't want to offend people. You know, there was a time when if you come to a church and you are preaching, and you, you're hearing preaching, the first thing that comes to you is, you are not a Christian. If you're not giving your life to Christ, you are going to hell today. Now, it's as if those messages have disappeared entirely. Earlier this week, I was reading something. It was required reading. And I came upon a term I've never in my life seen before. I know there's such a thing as a believer. And there's such a thing as an unbeliever. But I never knew there was such a thing as a pre-believer. Have you heard of that before? So, who is a pre-believer? A pre-believer is somebody who is... Not yet a Christian, but is getting towards becoming a Christian. For example, if you have an unbelieving spouse who follows you to church, that person is a pre-believer. Or if you have children of Christian parents, those people are pre-believers. But the Bible never makes that kind of a claim. It's always light or darkness, saved, unsaved, in Christ or not in Christ. Believer, unbeliever. And sometimes even some of us who are parents, we find it difficult to talk to our children. 
children. By nature, you are in darkness. Now, some people are scratching their head. Should we talk to children like that? Yes. There are only two possibilities. There's no middle ground. You won't get to heaven. Eh? You won't get to heaven. And then, or you, I'm not saying get to heaven now. You won't get on that day before God. And you tell God, God, I went to church when I was a child. God, I did all of this. My father was a pastor. My father planted a church. It doesn't work that way. I, I, I joined the choir. I played keyboard. I did all of this. It doesn't work that way. Because by nature, everybody's in darkness. And until a man or a woman and a boy or a girl put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are not Christians. I know in your school, you have friends. And some of your friends will talk to you and they'll tell you, eh, how can you say you're not a Christian when you say such a thing? They say you go to church, you're a Christian. No, don't, don't, don't believe that. If you go to church, you're not a Christian until you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it is not something that is for adults alone. It's for you. Christ is for you also. So you can repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Children, you can repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Before that, you are unbelievers. That's what John is saying. Light versus darkness. But John also tells us something. He says a Christian is somebody who is part of a family. Verse 9, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And the word brother is what is making me to deduce that John is trying to tell us that a Christian is somebody who is part of a family. A family. But unfortunately, because of the kind of place where we are in, in Africa, in Nigeria, the word brother is, I don't know how to tell, if you tell me to define the word brother now, based on usage, I can't even tell you what it is. In the first place, Everybody is your brother or sister by association. So if somebody comes from your village, that person is your brother. So then, when you introduce somebody as your brother, they ask you, is he your blood brother? What is blood brother? A brother is meant to be a sibling. But because of our communal lifestyle, your cousin is your brother. In fact, there's such a thing as cousin brother. And you know the word brother is just lose anyhow. So if you say brother in this context, say, it's not the same thing that John is saying. Also, certain parts of our culture use the word brother as a sign of respect. So, if somebody is older than you, you are not meant to call him by his first name. In fact, there's one children do auntie and uncle. When the person is clearly not your auntie and uncle, anybody will use it. We will use it here. So, a friend was telling me something one time that she was, she's from the Yoruba tribe, that she called somebody Mama Ayo. Example, just an example. And then the woman corrected her and said, you're supposed to call me Mama Boda Ayo. So that brother must be, you can, you can never in your life call Ayo without putting brother in front of it. Brother, brother. And so sometimes when we come to church, some of us don't understand why we use the word brother or sister. It's not a, a it's not a common term. There's a meaning to it. It's not just a term of endearment. Brother Fred, Brother Silas, Brother Emmanuel, Sister Joy. No, these are not terms of endearment. These are terms that the Bible 
gave to us to describe those who are part of a family. This is a word that the Bible gave to us to describe those who are part of the family of God. So when somebody is saying, brother, he's saying, you are part of my family, my spiritual family. How is it possible that people become part of the family of God? It's simple. Upon salvation, a, a person, man, boy, woman, girl, is adopted into the family of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. We are adopted to God through Jesus Christ so that all of us are now in the same family. And because we are in the same family, we can call each other brother and sister. In fact, we use it flippantly these days. So you just go on the streets. Either you call somebody chairman, you call him ogre, you call him boss, or you call him brother. But in this context, John is telling us that the Christian is one who is now part of the family of God. So whenever you read the book of First John, or whenever you read any Bible book, and you see the word brethren or brother, think of this immediately. This is a family of God. But then John is telling us that the Christian is one who is in love. First John chapter 2, verse 10. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So not only is a Christian somebody who is now in the light and lives in the light, not only a Christian is, is a Christian someone who is part of a family, a Christian is somebody who loves. And this is the height of what John is saying in this particular section. This is the, like, you want to say, the, the crux of the matter. That what one marker to know if a person is a Christian is this, that that person loves his brothers and sisters in the family of God. And it's a serious thing we're talking about. Because the default answer, we talked about this in the morning, if you say, do you love somebody? The default answer is what? Yes, I do. But love, like the word brother and the word friend, has fallen upon hard times. So that the word love means nothing. Sometimes I watch clips of award shows. And somebody comes on the stage to receive an award. They say, thank you so much for the award, for giving me this and all. I love you all. And then somebody will scream from the, the, the crowd and say, we love you too. Everybody will start laughing. He, 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 and we go, no, that's not love. Because every time we come upon words in the Bible, you see, this is the exercise we must always do. What does the Bible mean by brother? What does the Bible mean by light? What does the Bible mean by love? Christian love is not something that is merely emotional. Because sometimes when we hear the word love, the first thing we think is a wishy-washy, mushy kind of a thing. If you love me, is a, I don't know how to do, it's something that is grab, just wishy-washy, mushy, something merely emotional. So that I'm sleeping and I'm dreaming about you, I'm, I'm cooking, I'm thinking about you, and then I smile. I say, that's love. That's why when you go to secondary schools, now everybody's saying they love each other anyway. That's, that's silly. It's not love. And then, because of culture, because we watch a lot of movies, or we watch a lot of TV shows or something, 
we immediately think love is emotions. Now, love can be emotions, but not the love of the Bible. There are different kinds of love. The love of the Bible that the Apostle John is talking about, that the Bible talks about, when it talks about brotherly love, is not emotional love. Love is not merely sympathy or pity upon somebody who is suffering. It's not merely sympathy. Or, you know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 said something. He says, if I give all my goods to the poor and have not love, it is possible for a man to give all of his goods to the poor and still not have love. There are many reasons why people give. I like to say this. Some people give because they want to be applauded for it. Some people can give $1 million. They want to be applauded for it. Some people give. It, it took me time to understand this, especially in places like America. So that they will not pay taxes. How many of you know that? That giving, when you have your, when you get your salary, and then you can give a, if you listen to Ligonier and someone, when they talk, you can give a non-tax deductible gift. And when you give $5 to a, that kind of a place or that kind of a thing, automatically the tax you pay will reduce. So we will give because of that. So it is not just even mere actions. That, in fact, that, that makes somebody love. Because we can leave one extreme to another extreme. The extreme is love is not emotions. Then we say, okay, love is action, 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 action. But the Apostle Paul tells us that a man can be doing action, action. He said, I can even give my body to be burned, but I might not have love. So Christian love is not merely emotions or merely actions. And it's important for us to stress this. Because this is a marker, John tells us, if somebody is actually in the light, somebody is actually a Christian. I've heard this before. Hi, that brother is so nice. Kai must be a Christian. Well, Paul did not tell us that love is nice. So, those things can be there and a man may not love. First of all, Christian love is a command. We looked at this in the morning. When the Bible talks about love, we looked at the words of Jesus Christ in John 13, John 15, and even now in 1 John chapter 2, it is usually put in the place of a command. So this is to tackle those who say love is emotions. So love is a command. And nobody can obey God who is not saved. Nobody can obey the commandments of God who is not saved. So the first thing we are talking about in love is that a man must have experienced a change in his heart before he can love. That is, if a man has not been saved, he can't even obey the command at all. Love is a command. Christian love is a supernatural love. It's a supernatural love. In other words, it's not what every Tom, Dick, and Harry on the street can do. This is very important for us to, to note because the man of the world, the man in darkness cannot love. He can give his money, he can do a lot of things, but what the Bible calls love, he cannot do it. It is supernatural. It is folly for us to expect the worldly man, the unbeliever, to do something which only believers can do. Sometimes, when we're talking about issues and what people are doing, we forget to think, is this person a Christian? Uh, the late pastor of Westminster Chapel, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
Whenever somebody will come to his counseling room for counseling, you know, some of us can be too practical. So the person comes to you and says, okay, I'm having this challenge. I want to get married. I'm having issues, getting married, all of these things. The first thing he does is to ascertain that this person is a Christian. You know why? If I give him any advice from the Bible, it will not work. It won't work. Some people, you know, some people are foolish sometimes. There are general principles in the word of God. Forget it. If you are not a Christian, the commands that God has given will not work. Because God is not just concerned about results. He's also concerned about your sanctification. He says, okay, don't talk too much. Don't sleep too much. Don't do this one. Don't do this one. Is the person a Christian first and foremost? Because a worldly man cannot do what God has commanded his own people to do. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see that love is a sacrificial, self-giving thing. That the kind of love we are talking about is a sacrificial, self-giving love. First John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, by this we know what love is. That's what the apostle John is saying. He says, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. So if we have not come to this, we have not understood what Christian love is. Sacrificial, self-giving. When 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning in our Sunday school, and one of the things Paul praised the Macedonian church for was they first of all gave themselves to the Lord and next what they gave themselves to us. So love is giving, sacrificial, self-giving. It is from you. It is not something that, that comes outside what God is working in a man. Let's look at the life of Jesus and see how Jesus loved and see how we are to love. First of all, when we look at the life of our Lord, we see that Jesus gave his life for those who he loved. What is expected of us? We are expected, if we truly love, to give our lives for those who we love. It's very important. Because sometimes we can sit in church and we are so scattered. And a brother might be going through so much difficulty. And I know that if I let go of certain things, this brother will be fine. But I don't. Because what? I need it. I know that if I let go of a car, if I let go of a phone, a mobile phone, if I let go of a suit, of a shoe, of something I have, if you're not doing that, you're not loving. Jesus patiently bore with his disciples and continues to bear with us. If we are not bearing with others, we can't say we are loving. What does it mean to bear or to forbear? It is that somebody hurts you seven times. And yet you still go and shake the person and smile from your heart. It is that no matter the offense that somebody brings to your way, if this person is a brother, ah, I will bear with his faults. One of the things that marks the church of Christ, over and over, we see this in the New Testament, is this bearing with one another. You know, sometimes you see something, some drama. Say, say, say my cup is fooling, fooling, fooling. My cup don't fool. No, in, in the church of Christ, your cup will, continue, it will fill to overflowing and you will do nothing because Christ is bearing with us. Jesus Christ died to forgive our sins. If we are not forgiven, if there is no forgive, I'm talking about Christian love now, if there is no forgiveness, we can't really say we love. 
If there's no forgiveness, that is somebody has done this to you, the person is wrong, clearly, and you are right. And you say, don't worry, I let it go. I forgive you. And why do you forgive? Because Christ has forgiven you. That is what it means to love. Christ continues to build us up in the truth. If we say we love, we will seek to build each other up. Sometimes the the existence of gossip and slander in church is a sign that people are not safe. If you go to a church and gossip and slander is the norm, I assure you, most of those people are not Christian. I'm telling you the truth. Look at verse, what was the verse 8 of, of, of our text? John says, the person who loves, no, not, not in verse 8, verse 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It is a normal thing in the life of, I can't put a, I can't put a stumbling block before my brother. I can't desire to bring him down. I can't desire to empty him. I mean, sometimes when I hear stories of what happens in churches, even churches I've been part of, where somebody is actively trying to tear somebody else down. I'm serious, so let's be, let's be factual. You've been in churches like that. All of us know that this thing is not true. But a Christian brother takes that narrative and actively seeks to tear somebody else down. And then every time you meet somebody, say, have you heard what he has done? Have you heard what Emeka has done? Have you heard what she has done? Christ built us up as his church and continues to build us up. If we don't build each other up, we do not love. Christ continues to make intercession for us. If we say we love, we will make intercession for each other. We will make intercession for each other. See, it is impossible for you to love somebody as a Christian and not pray for them. It is, it is not, I don't, I don't want to say this, of course, it happens because we are forgetful people. If you truly love somebody, you will bring his needs before God. So if you come to a church, I'm trying to be as practical as possible, and then they bring up a need in church and tell you that this brother here is looking for accommodation. And then you leave church on Sunday. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you didn't even pray about it for one day. And then the next Sunday, you are in church and they are praying about it. I forget. Love means we pray for one another. Love means, in fact, all of the one another statements found in the New Testament, we do them for one another. You know the problem we have in church? We think that I'm supposed to pray for the person who is my friend. I'm supposed to pray for the person who is my friend. So if the need is from Josh, or from God's shield, I will pray. No. But if Christ intercedes for us, we ought to intercede also for one another. This is what it means to love. This is what it means to be a Christian. Let me close by saying this. In the time of John, what the Gnostics were saying was that they had greater knowledge. That they had greater knowledge. So, they knew more than the ordinary Christians. That's why I told you heresy can be problematic, because it's as if you are bringing something bamboozling. The word of God is that which gives spirit and life. And it makes sense. And so these other people will be like, ah, we don't know so much. Oh. We don't know so much. Oh. We don't know so much. Don't you find it interesting that the apostle John does not give even correct doctrine, teaching as a sign here 
for being a Christian. He gives love. He says, the person is now in the light, he's now part of a family, and he loves those, the members of this family. We must apply this test to ourselves. It is not enough to even have right doctrine. Because right doctrine can make us puffed up. Puffed up. And so sometimes when I see social media engagement, and I mean, what's happening here? I must tell you that the worst set of people, or one of the worst set of people, and I'm saying this unapologetically because I'm on social media, are Calvinists to argue with. They are one of the worst set of people that you can meet. I'm saying even if you are a Calvinist, to catch a Calvinist online, and the person is arguing on a matter that both of you don't agree on. It can be as if the person wants to kill you. So this last week, T4G, together for the gospel, had their last conference ever. Because those people, all they had their last conference. And so a man by the name of Shai Lee, Lin, preached. And a quote was taken. And he said that you can love Christ. You can love doctrine and not love Christ. Or something like that. And then the comments I saw, I was like, goodness me. The first thing you should ask is, can I listen to the full message? Let me hear what the person is saying. Let me understand what the person is saying. Can I, can I get more context? This is just one line. Let me get what he's saying. And so somebody said, hey, Shailene has gone woke and he has done all of these things. I said, ah, ah. Two of them are Calvinists too. Because right doctrine can become a hindrance. Can become a problem. One time, John Newton, who, you know, some of you know John Newton, he's the pastor who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a slave owner, and God saved him, and, and he, he became a pastor. A fellow pastor wrote to him and told him that he wanted to engage another pastor on orthodoxy. That other pastor is already going side. See, this is what they do there. There's no social media. When a pastor writes a book, and maybe he's saying something that is wrong, what you do is you write another book. So you are writing, you are writing treatises, you write 10 pages, the person writes 15 pages, you write like that, like that. And so you wrote to John Newton as, an, as a more experienced minister for help. And John Newton told him, he said, it's good that you are concerned about right doctrine. As a matter of fact, I am in support of your cause. It's good, I like it. But consider three things before you write your letter. Number one, Consider this other pastor. And that before you even take up a pen to write anything, commit him to God in prayer. Before you take up, you are, you are right to what you are saying is true. And the person is wrong. But before you write anything, commit him to God in prayer. And when you are writing it, commit it to God in prayer. If this man is a Christian, then you understand that he is just mistaken in his head. But his heart is right. He has been saved. He's a child of God. I say, be careful how you address him because when we get to heaven, he'll be closer to you than some of your friends that are here if he's a Christian. I said, if this man is not a Christian, then you must be persuasive enough to try to win him over to your position. You are right, though. You have the right doctrine. But don't do this without considering the other person that I want to win him over. He said, consider the crowd who will read this thing. There are three categories of people there. There are some who agree with you. That's not a problem. There are some who are indifferent. They've made up their mind. 
And there are some who are who will disagree with you. And that you have to write in such a way that you don't put a stumbling block in the path of these people. And he said, consider yourself. Consider yourself. And this is what I want to tell us this evening. Consider yourself. And whoever is online, when you engage in controversy, because you can easily begin to hate people. You can easily begin to hate people. I stopped intentionally. I observed that anytime there is an argument, it does something to me. It's just, sometimes you can't even sleep. You just feel resentment. How dare he talk to me like that? When I have 2,000 years of church history to support my position. But don't forget this. If this person is a brother, if this person is a brother, it changes how we relate with that person. Online, offline, in church, outside church. This is a test. So if a man comes and he says, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and there is no single iota of love in him, he's deceiving himself. A man can come to church, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but no love, no self-sacrifice, no self-giving, nothing in him that looks like Christ. No, that person is not a Christian. So we have to apply this test to ourselves. Do I really, really love? Do I love? Is it a concern for me when I see somebody going the hay the other way with false doctrine? Is it a concern? Do I even imagine that I'm dealing with a soul? And if this person is an unbeliever, God save him. God save him. And we go on our knees and we are crying before God. God save this person. Bring senses to his mind. It's easy for us to lose sight of all of these things. But John is telling us that if we are Christians, we will love. So let's apply this test to ourselves. In an age where there is a lot of unorthodox Christianity, when there's a lot of heresy and error, let us remember what biblical Christianity is and who a Christian is in accordance with the scriptures. Let us pray. Our Lord, we ask that you would take this word we have heard that you apply it to our hearts and grant us even further understanding as we depart this house in Jesus' name.